Welcome to the ONS Energy Talks, a podcast where you meet experts on energy, technology, and sustainability. Hello, uh, welcome to a podcast by Learn and ONS Energy Talks. I'm Sylvia Serres. Our topic is energy, and my guest today is Carl Herswick, the CEO of Aker BP. Welcome. Thank you. It's fun to have you here because I have interviewed a couple of your employees and everybody spokes, speaks about um, uh, Carl Johnny or Kalle uh, with a huge uh, respect as a transformative leader. So we'll talk about that. Probably exaggerated, but okay. <laughs> Before we uh, talk about uh, what uh, AKBP does really well, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about you. So could you tell us who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, yeah, so I'm Kala Nasik. Most people say Kala. Uh, I am then the head of, of uh, AKBP or CEO, as some say. Um, my background is actually as a mathematician. Um, so I started What out... What kind of mathematician? Well, I started out in kind of a, doing a, an industrial mathematics type of background where you do... Numerical analysis. Yeah, yeah numerical analysis, but also programming and mm. time, trying to apply it to industrial mm. problems. Uh, and then it kind of turned into more of applied mathematics, but still mm. with a very heavy application side and programming side. So that's where I started out. Um, I've been in an entrepreneur, started up a couple of IT companies back in 1997, 98. Doing what? Uh, so one of them was actually doing front ends or mm -hmm. web-based front ends on databases. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other one was to optimize uh, runtimes on uh, supercomputers. Hmm. So the, both was probably a good idea the first time we didn't really have an idea how to make a business plan. So it was a good technical exercise, but not really a company the next time mm. around. It was actually quite good. Mm. Um, but then back in 98, this wasn't really that easy and I ended up in uh, Norskudo at the time mm -hmm. and worked a uh, number of roles in Norskudo, uh, including subsurface lead, project leads, Bit in strategy, a bit in finance, business development, technology. Um, did a, a stint of international, mm. particularly in the Middle East. Um, and then the merger came, of course, with uh, between Oskudo and Stator. Uh, so I was a part of that merger group. Then I did quite a lot of different stuff in, in uh, Stator, no Aquino. And ended up as a head of research and development um, before I left. Uh, Equinor to uh, join uh, Denoske, which is now Akebibi. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that journey from Denoske to uh, Akebibi. Yeah, it's actually quite quite interesting, and when you're in the middle of it, you don't reflect a lot over it. But uh, if you, um, when I joined, that was April 2014. At that point in time, we in Denoske had. 378 employees, 1,200 barrels of production from a small field called Yette, which is now decommissioned. Um, but we were kind of starting a strategy where the next big project was Streupne, which is now called Eva Rosen. And we were also a partner on Johan Sverdrup, which was, was quite, a, quite a big thing. Um, and then uh, if you just fast forward... Today, we produced 166,000 barrels. We were about uh, 1,900 employees, 500 consultants and contractors, 
uh, and we are probably one of the biggest independents in Europe. So that's four years. So in many ways, I, I used to say that we're not only a gas company, but behaving and growing like a tech company. Hmm. So, so, so independence, meaning? Yeah, so independence, you kind of group the oil and gas companies in majors, which mm. is the Shells and the BPs and the Equinos of this world. Always nationally owned or not? No, not nationally. ExxonMobil is not. Yeah, mm. both ExxonMobil, Shell, or they're mm. all publicly traded, right? Mm. And then you got the nationals, which is the Saudi Aramco's and mm. these kind of companies. And then on the level below, you got the independents. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is usually publicly traded and they're usually independent from the resource owner, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a quite an interesting space. But then um, there is also this international aspect where you had a very Norwegian company that merged with a British company. Or yeah, sure. Tell us a little bit about um, the, the, the joys and the sorrows. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's actually a, quite an interesting story that... Um, Before we actually merged with BP, we've done quite a bit of acquisitions in Norway, right? Because in we merged uh, with Marathon or acquired Marathon in Norway back in, that was June 2014. At that point in time, the oil price was 104 and the sky was blue and everybody was optimistic. <laughs> But of course, in the autumn of 2014, uh, the oil price plummeted again. Um, I actually think that we timed the bottom. So we had a first couple market day in the Norsk ever in January 2015, and the oil price was down at 28. That was <laughs> ideal time. <laughs> uh, so we've done quite a bit of mergers and acquisitions. So we actually, from a process perspective, I think we're actually quite good hmm. uh, at uh, joining companies. You and mean then, also taking the best from the two different cultures? Yeah. So we had a little bit of a background when it came to actually doing these kind of mergers. Mm. So it wasn't it wasn't the first one. Um, and then when we had the opportunity to join forces with BP, um, that was uh, basically on the back of a long relationship between BP uh, mm. and Arca from an oil services perspective. Um, so there, it wasn't like there was a new relationship. There was a lot of trust built up on both sides. That, of course, eased Uh, the whole transition. And then we signed the agreement in June 2016 and we merged the companies uh, effective as of 2nd of, of December 2016. So it's a really short period of time. So that's lesson number one. Don't drag these things out. Mm. Do it with speed and mm. just make sure that you have flow and just carry out. Second, in that period of time, we, we did a lot of analysis of what we wanted the company to be. Right? So we didn't basically say, okay, from every single point, we'll just take mm. the best. We had a certain direction. What we, was that? We wanted to be lean. We wanted to be independent. We wanted to be fast moving. Uh, and we wanted to uh, have a profile where we maximized value from, from a shareholder perspective on everything we do. So on, that was basically the foundation. Maximize long-term or short-term value? Uh, is it just efficiency or is it uh, nah, it's both, right? balance? So, mm. so th that's a, to me, that's a constructed dilemma. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you look upon this as a, and you ask the question, is it short-term or long-term? Usually companies that are really good at long-term value creation are also good at short-term value creation. Mm. And the reason is they just detest waste. I, I agree, really but I think the waste. opposite is not the case. No, not necessarily. <laughs> so you could be very focused on mm. short term and forgot, forget the long term. We didn't do that. Mm. We're an oil and gas company. We have a long term horizon, pretty much everything we do. But we're very focused on, an, on getting this balance together, right? 
That's why we said our strategy is basically execute, improve, and grow. Mm. It's not execute or grow. Mm. It's both, right? So when you say you were building this company as it was a technology company, is that what you mean? Or what, what do you mean? Uh, that came a bit later, actually, mm. uh, that kind of thinking. So what we had was a very clear strategy, a very clear direction. And then we built the company around that. We selected the leaders that we thought could contribute to it. We selected business management system components that we thought would contribute to that kind of strategy. And then, of course, we deselected others. But we were quite uh, stringent in that origination of these ideas did not matter. So, so whether so they came from the XBP or the Xdenosk or the X Marathon, we really didn't care that much. But um, you make it sound very simple. Uh, yet was, I know how, how. Well, no, I know that building these teams that you describe. You know, we just selected the best people we wanted to have on the team, and 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 they came. H- how did you make them come? <laughs> well, there's a certain. I mean, it it actually was kind of simple. It's not a lot of magic to it, but it is a quite a bit of hard work. Um, so the thing that we. I think I did, we did correctly was that we created a lot of engagement mm. around that journey, what we were trying to do and what we wanted to do. And that's always done on the back of a very simple story. Mm. So if the story is very complicated, it's hard to teach. If the story is very simple, it's much simpler to teach. So that's why we said, okay, we wanted uh, the, the foundations was very simple. We wanted to be the leading independent. Uh, we had a very simple value proposition. We had a very simple uh, value driver and a thinking around value driver. Tell us those two things. What was your value proposition and what was your value driver? So uh, if you start with the other one, if you, if you start with value drivers, uh, I think a lot of people in the oil and gas industry underinvest in data acquisition. Mm-hmm. So our understanding was always that you had to invest in the fundamentals and that had to start with data acquisition. So that means we always started thinking about this from the bottom up. We we started thinking about what kind of seismic do we need? What kind of wells do we need? How much do we actually have to invest mm. in the subsurface to create enough ideas that could flow through the value chain and ultimately create production? So, so, so that's kind of the starting point. And if you have that kind of mentality into everything you do, whether that is capital structure, seismic analysis, uh, pilot wells, data acquisition, data strategy. I mean, the story becomes very simple. So the story becomes, how do we actually maximize value? How do we make sure that we put uh, input factors where it generates the maximum return? Uh, and of course, then you end up in, in these discussions around, uh, uh, around risk as well, but we'll come back to that later, I guess. And then it, it's about creating a simple framework for people to work in. So we wanted a flat organization. We wanted decisions to be taken at the sharp end where possible so that people were felt that they were empowered to execute on the strategic goals that were given to them. Um, and we had created a very uh, simple uh, value framework and leadership expectation framework. So trying to kind of keep it simple but make sure that it's based on a I wouldn't call it a philosophy that's taking it too far, but but based on a framework that is easy for people to communicate and understand. And then on top of that framework, you can make it intensely complicated, right? You can start building structures, and but you always have to go back to that framework and see what is actually driving value. What are we really uh, looking for in this company? 
And if you put that down uh, very, very early in that kind of process, it also leads and guides who you choose as leaders, who is feeling engaged in this process and who is not necessarily feeling engaged. Do you want a professional career or a leadership career, etc.? So all these kind of discussions and decisions that you have to take down the, uh, down the line. And if you couple that with, uh, with speed, and we put the leadership team, my leadership team, um, together in four weeks after we have signed the uh, uh, signed the um, SPA or the, the, the agreement with BP, uh, you're starting to get momentum. Mm. And momentum is fundamental when you're driving, driving these kind of processes. So um, then if we go back to the risks, how do you... Um... How do you time them? How do you manage them? I mean, you're trying to build a leading independent oil company in the world, which is not a small task. No. Uh, you say you It's want to daunting, maximize actually. shareholder value, um, uh, which means you have to be super efficient, but also have some sort of a very stable long-term growth. Uh, I, I, I imagine these licenses are not that easy to get. I imagine no, no. that getting to new efficiencies in the oil sector, uh, maybe there was more space for that at the time than there is today? No, I don't think that's changed a lot. Um, so what did you do in order to get to, to, to be one of the leading independents then? Yeah, um, I would say this, this journey actually started back in 2014, right? So, so we, we had a plan. We had a. It's only four years ago. Yeah, we had a vision mm. of something we wanted to create, and that's that's probably number one, right? You you have to have this plan in the back of your mind all the time. Um, and that was formulated between us in the management, but also with a very active participation of the owners at that point in time, particularly the Arca Group. Um. And then, of course, when you when the oil price dropped, um, we, just as everybody else, was a bit shocked. But I would say we probably recovered quicker than mm. than our peers. So, so back in 2015, when the oil price basically went back up again a little bit, um, then we were back out in the capital market. We refinanced the company. We set up new capital structures. We ensured that we had sufficient liquidity to live through volatility. Uh, we basically took a lot of pain. Uh, to reset that company. And then that that period of time, it enabled us actually to acquire other companies when they were struggling. So in 2014 and 2015, M&A was not really at the forefront of a lot of independence uh, strategy. But that, that uh, and uh, efficiency and exploration uh, and production was basically everything we thought about. So we did a lot of transactions uh, in that period of time uh, where there were not a lot of competition. And mm. then it's fairly easy to do acquisitions. Um, and then you started thinking about risk in another way. I mean, how do you actually place uh, technology? How do you think about uh, execution of projects, right? And oil and gas companies are typically conservative. Technology qualification takes a long time, et cetera, et cetera. But what we wanted is to have a more forward-leaning approach to this. And I came from, without highlighting my role in, to to a high degree, but I came from technology side of things, right? Uh, and I always thought that we had two stringent processes, and we basically used the same kind of process that we used for extremely, let's say... Predictable. Yeah, but it... 
I mean, you, you could take Oscar subset compressor and the technology qualification around that, but that's like a, covering the size of a football field, right? But if you have the same kind of methodical approach to, let's say, a, a new digital tool, which have a completely different risk, but you follow the same technology readiness levels, I actually think you are, you are slowing down mm. the easy stuff and you're probably creating a little bit of risk in the difficult stuff. Mm. So, so the thinking we had was, do we actually believe this is going to work? Yes or no? And what is the fallback if it doesn't work? And if you can answer that t- those two basic questions, then the question was much easier. How can we actually quantify this risk? And if we thought it was defendable, we would go out and do it in the field because that would accelerate learning it will accelerate our ability to capture value from these technologies. Um, but more importantly, it creates um, prideness and proud, proudness of pride among the people who are actually executing it. Mm. And it connects the technology development communities with the operational communities, right? Mm. Because all of a sudden they have to collaborate to solve a task. It's not like, and I hate this world, technology is implemented. Mm-hmm in an organization because that basically says I don't need this I as a customer I don't really want it but somebody is going to implement it it's like going out and saying to the customers in the street that I I, I don't know what I'm going to sell you but I'm going to implement this as this <laughs> iPhone nobody had bought that right? mm-hmm. so the, the product needs to be so good that the customer wants to work with mm-hmm. the technology and technology risk uh, and that they're feeling strongly empowered to drive that into their own businesses. And then, yes, sometimes it's working out and sometimes it's failing. Um, but from an overall perspective, I think we've actually gained a lot more than we lost. I think the the interesting thing here is that technology people, whether they originally come from technology or have acquired skills later on, have this necessary optimism to understand that there is also a very big risk related to not doing the necessary things. You know, sometimes the biggest risk is not taking any risk at all. And the way that we measure leadership, the way that we measure some of these big incumbent companies in oil or in other sectors is such that you should prove that you've minimized absolutely every source of, you know, knowable risk. And then, and then, and then I think you, 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 you disincentivize people to take the necessarily new, necessary new investments and new risks in order to figure out what's going to be the most efficient solution a year or two from now. Yeah, you could be right. Uh, but from, from an OKPP perspective, we've basically said we want to maximize value. Mm. Right? So we think about all of this from, we don't really think about it from a technology Cost. perspective. Mm. We think about it from a value mm-hmm. perspective. And we don't really think about it from a cost perspective either. We think about it from a unit cost perspective, right? Which is a completely different thing. Because mm-hmm. if you just focus on one part of the equation and you look, don't look at the other part of the equation, you can actually make very mm-hmm. poor decisions. Um, and then I actually think that there's a lot to learn mm-hmm. from the way the incumbents, whether they're in oil and gas or in technology, have actually thought about technology, right? And sometimes, yes, they become too risk adverse, but other times they're actually really, really forward leading. So, so from my perspective, it's just about finding the right process that fits uh, with uh, the current problem. The current problem we're trying to solve, right? Mm. And I, I used to say this all the time. This is more about I have problem, I need a solution. That's a kind of an mm. innovation challenge than have solution looking for problem. Mm. Right? And too many times I've mm. seen the latter one 
and it really doesn't work. People fall in love with some sort of a solution. You, and, fa- you uh, fall in love with a solution and you fall in love with the technology. <laughs> and I've done that myself, so I know exactly how it feels. Yeah. And you can't really find the right application. Yeah. So tell us about uh, one or two of the most interesting technology applications that you think are game changers for, for your company. Okay, so uh, I think that actually, uh, if you really want to talk about game changers, the way I think about it, the most obvious one is the whole digital space. Uh, and particularly as it relates to how we harvest, utilize, and analyze data uh, on an industrial scale. So from an oil and gas perspective, uh, data has always been a very fundamental part of our business, whether that is seismic or well logs or you name it, mm-hmm. right? So an oil and gas company has always spent enormous amount of funds acquiring these data from the very early days when you had trawlers out and you were throwing dynamite into the water to create waves. I mean, we were gathering data all the time. So there's nothing wrong with that experience in gathering data. But we really haven't been uh, sufficiently fluid in liberating uh, these data so that they're available across systems, across platforms, um, Connected across users. Connected and uh, meaningful. Yeah. Uh, so whether that connectedness means that they're ingested or contextualized in a meaningful way, whether they're actually utilized. Right? Most of the data that the oil and gas company creates today is not utilized. My guess is that if you pick a random oil and gas company, five to eight percent of the data is actually utilized. The rest is stored, mm. but not necessarily utilized. To be used perhaps later, because it's safe. Or perhaps because there isn't processes or technologies in place to utilize that data. And when you started thinking about this, we started thinking about this, I would say this was probably a wrong assumption, but we thought about this from a user perspective initially. So we were worried about the apps, we were worried about the user interfaces and et cetera, et cetera. But that's as we grow to understand the problem more, we changed that perception. Mm-hmm. So now we started thinking about this from a data and data ingestion perspective. And we developed, uh, and this was John Marcus Levick, who is now heading Cognite, Cognite. Uh, Peral Kognev, who is my head of improvement and also heading up the digital efforts in RKBP, used to be head of Arca Solutions in Norway, and yours truly. We spent about six months traveling around, visiting everybody that had anything meaningful to say about the industrial applications of, of data. And we discovered that the, the most important thing is actually getting access to the data itself. Because they're stored in many different silos, many different systems. These systems don't communicate. Sometimes they don't communicate with themselves and they definitely don't communicate with other systems. So you had all these silos sometimes as many as 150 different systems gathering data across that kind of pieces or parts of the value chain. So data and data structure became number one. And then we understood that a lot of people are actually working on very hard problems high up in predictive analysis, but they had no way of doing simple visualization of data. So cross plots, trends, trending analysis became probably- Make data useful. Yes. Mm number one, right? Mm. Make it available. Mm. Liberate it, in a way. Whether that... <laughs> and then we started thinking about, top of, on top of that again, you started thinking about analysis, whether that's machine learning or statistical analysis or some, some sort of predictive analysis. And then on top of that, you have the user interfaces again. But that's also the order of complexity. Right? And that's mm. what really struck us. The really hard problem 
was to get these data liberated. When you get them liberated, there are a lot of interesting platforms out there that can help you uh, visualize them. And then there are actually quite few uh, commercially available uh, machine learning algorithms or other algorithms that can help you an analyze them. And then when you've done the visualization, the analysis and the deliberation to create the small apps that allows the users to put it on his iPhone or whatever, that's the simple part. So, so when we had made that kind of realization, we understood that we couldn't just go to a window. We had to create something ourselves. So that's when, um, when Cognite was kind of born. Uh, and now we're a year in. All data in RKBP is now flowing through that platform. Mm. That means that they're available to anybody in the company. So it has funny, funny, uh, yeah, funny things happen. So people are like, all of a sudden get uh, interested in ROPs on drilling rigs or vibration data on compressors, and but they're all available, right? Mm. Uh, everything from how uh, PSV moves. Mm. Uh, in the North Sea, we can now track how much cargo it has, sailing time, etc., etc., sailing route on in a real-time way. We couldn't do that before. But listen, so, so it's uh, changed a lot. So this you, is this is. But the, the the thing in here is that it's going to change the business models, fundamentally change the business model, and that's just about to happen. So this is what I wanted to ask you about. Um, you and I are running out of time, but uh, it's too much fun to stop. So um, you talked about visualization of data, but then there is also this uh, algorithm-based optimization of processes and the reorganization of the value chain, mm. as you mentioned. Say two sentences about... Reorganization value chain? Yeah. So the way we think about reorganization of value chain is that we we came to a realization during, uh, I would say, during the... Uh, it was a project, which was our first uh, field development project, that there was an enormous amount of wastes in the way this value chain was being organized, right? Uh, so pretty obvious things. Um, all these companies that are involved, they have the same kind of organization. They have a project lead, they have a safety lead, they have a quality lead, etc. So you had a lot of duplication. Mm -hmm. Second, there was not really a good way of calibrating, collaborating. So that means that there was an enormous amount of documents many too many. Yes, mm. flowing around. Mm. So the whole document uh, library was in excess of 12,000 documents, and most of them were actually interface documents. Not really documentation in terms of document that would happen. They were controlling interfaces. And the last one, we felt that there was not a lot, uh, there was not sufficient amount of accountability. So decisions were not necessarily being taken at that part in the value chain who had the highest degree of competence. So you ended up with such as you're truly having to make decisions on which I had no real competence. Rather than having the the uh, the individual who was the most competent in the mm. entire value chain make that decision. Right? So autonomy or empowerment mm. became a huge issue. And then I would say the last one was the basically the uh, the transactional mechanisms. So we came to the conclusion that a lot of these were actually set up to um, in such a way that they weren't naturally incentivizing removal inefficiencies. Quite the opposite. Mm. You had sometimes set up contractual structures that would drive inefficiencies. Mm. So the way we felt about this was very simple. We need to change three things. We need to change the operationalization of this. That is how things are being done, where they sit, what kind of uh, authority they have, etc. We needed to change the organization. 
so we couldn't have lots of different organizations that were collaborating through documents. We needed one organization, which is not what we now call an alliance. And then we needed that transactional mechanism that would drive an efficiency and drive these companies and organizations and individuals together. So that meant that we need to put a lot of value on efficiency uh, and some disincentives on waste. So we created this most likely cost scenario where the alliance themselves actually set the target and then they have a significant benefit if they underscore and a little bit of pain if they overscore. Again, it's not science and we haven't invented it. We basically discovered that was the way that the auto industry in the East had set up their value chain. So we basically took the basic principles and implemented them. And we did it in a classical RKBP way, which we thought about it for a little while. And then we tested it in one alliance, which was the Subsea Alliance. And when we saw that that has kind of a developed in the way we hoped, we rolled it out across. So now we have seven alliances, about 95% of our cost picture into these alliance structures. So again, we, have, we, we, we don't really invent stuff. We have a tendency of... Copy with pride. Copying and then implementing. <laughs> implementing really well is often three quarters, I think, of the, of the innovation. Um, would you like to leave people with some sort of an energy tech quote? Yeah, I, I think this is an interesting one. And most people have a little bit of an intellectual war. But my favorite quote, which actually I think came out of a, a discussion uh, in another forum, is, is from Jon Marcus Zerevik, who says that the, the data has to be like air, immediately available. Uh, and it sounds, a bit, it sounds a bit silly, but when you really start to think about what it really means to have all data immediately available... It's actually a pretty profound observation. And I use that a lot when I try to explain what data availability and data liberation mean. And I actually think it's it's growing on me because the complexity in that problem of immediately available data in your entire value chain, in your entire company, is a pretty daunting task. Um, what would you like people to remember from our conversation if there is like one thing they can take with them? Um, <laughs> that's a good question. Maybe, um, maybe that you sometimes have to have a very clear long-term picture, um, and you have to dare to set up pretty hairy targets, uh, and then go for them when the opportunity arises. Carl Johnny, or just Carl Hesvik. <laughs> CEO of Arcadia BP, thank you so much for coming here and inspiring us techies and non-techies about aggressive but also very directed use of technology in the field of energy. Thank you. And thank you for listening.